Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're <laughs> tuning in from at the moment to, to this forum on polio. It's in anticipation of World Polio Day, which is going to be next week, next Tuesday. We're holding this forum to discuss the efforts to get to the very end of a disease that has been uh, a huge public health issue around the globe until just recently. It instilled fear even in the United States. Uh, in all over the world. Uh, it's now down to just a few cases. We have less than a dozen cases globally, and it appears that the end of polio is very close. And so we're here to discuss that today. Um, we're gonna be talking with people from UNICEF, uh, the Harvard Opinion Research Program. They've been working for years on trying to better understand the attitudes around polio. Uh, in addition, the government of Pol Pakistan is working very hard to try to snuff out the last few cases that are there. We're gonna hear from those stakeholders today. Uh, I'm very thrilled to be joined today by Mike McGovern. He's the chairman of Rotary's Polio Plus Committee. He's been working on this issue for years. Uh, Jalal Abdelwahab, he's the Polio Unit Deputy Director at UNICEF. He's over here on my right. And Jillian Steele-Fisher, the Director of Global Polling at the Harvard Opinion Research Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where we are broadcasting from here today. And also, joining us remotely, we're thrilled that Senator Aisha Raouz Farouk uh, has been able to join us from Lahore. She's the Prime Minister's focal person on polio eradication for the government of Pakistan. Thank you for joining us as well. Um, this event is also being uh, presented in association with NPR. I'm the global health correspondent at NPR. I cover polio as well as many other global health issues for, for NPR. And this is also being live streamed on NPR and the forum at the moment. Uh, we will have a Q&A a bit later. If you are watching remotely and have questions that you want to send in, you can email those questions to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, you can also participate in live chats that's happening on the forum right now if, if you want to um, join the conversation that's there. Back in 1988, when the world decided to try this effort to eradicate a second disease after smallpox to try to wipe out polio. There were approximately 350,000 cases of polio <laughs> globally. We're now on track for eradication. Let's take a look at a clip from UNICEF uh, that explains how close we really are. Aziza is a four-year-old Pakistani girl, and this drop will save her from crippling polio. It's just one of billions of drops UNICEF and its partners have provided over the past 26 years. Because of drops like these, a generation of children has grown up without the fear of polio. Worldwide cases have dropped by over 99%. Over 11 million childhood disabilities and deaths have been prevented. And we're on track to completely eradicate polio within the next few years. But we're not there yet. UNICEF's mission is to protect every last child. So we won't stop until every last case of polio is prevented. Like Aziza's. Because every child deserves to live in a polio-free world. So, Mike, I want to start with you. I mean, we are obviously very close, as that, that clip is showing, but what are sort of the main challenges to getting to that last eradication to that this is no longer a public health problem for the world? Uh, thanks, Jason, and thanks for uh, inviting uh, Rotary here today. Uh, there, there are challenges, but, you know, the, the whole effort to eradicate polio over the years show that all of the challenges can be overcome. You know, as you mentioned, there were 350,000 cases in, in the world back in 1988 when this partnership was formed. It, Rotarians back at the time thought that was terrible. Uh, Rotaries in countries around the world, we, we went to uh, 
the Philipp to the Philippines and the Filipino Rotarians particularly decided as a matter of equity if, if folks in Canada didn't have to worry about the kids having polio it wasn't fair that, that they had to worry so we we worked with uh, the World Health Organization the government of the the Philippines to eradicate polio in the Philippines and then you know having seen the success of that it was decided let's let's well why not the rest of the world Rotary raised some money. We went to the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, and this partnership was formed. And slow by slowly, country by country, polio's been gone. But you know the challenge right now is we're so close. As you mentioned, only 12 cases in the world. We're in Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And the danger is people say, "Well, there's only 12 cases." You know, why, why are you spending so much time on this? The issue is we're still immunizing 450 million children a year. Uh, because if there's polio anywhere, it can spread anywhere. And, you know, the, the whole effort of this 30 years to work on this and to get it done, you know, I always look at you, you don't stop short of the finish line. Uh, you know, the Boston Marathon is, uh, the, the finish line's not too far from where we're sitting today. And, you know, the runner that goes the 26 miles and doesn't go the 26.2, doesn't get it done. So you know, so you know, our challenge is to make sure there isn't complacency, to make sure that all the countries continue to work at it, and th that we deal with the, the the other challenges of you know we have a few vaccine derived cases, uh, we're working on those, and to make sure that every area is accessible. Uh, UNICEF's worked very hard, for instance, in in ensuring that uh, all of the community leaders that need to be supportive are supportive, and you know, for Rotary that really began all this. Uh, you know, I don't think we could have better partners, and particularly the governments of the world as well, because this doesn't happen. You don't have the the parents willing to to work uh, to have their kids vaccinated unless you have the full government support from uh, the health secretaries, the health councils, and folks like the senator in Pakistan. Yeah, for for Rotary, this certainly mm -hmm. has been a signature issue. Mm -hmm. uh, also for UNICEF, this has been a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about. What's happening from UNICEF's perspective right now, focused mainly on polio? So for UNICEF, equity is very central uh, for the work. And UNICEF works on both sides, uh, the demand and the supply as well. So one of the things that UNICEF provides for the eradication initiative is over 1.3 billion doses last year that were procured and delivered for over 40 countries. And of course, when you think of the logistics that are involved to get it in cold chain into those areas, into the hardest to reach areas. But the other very important aspect which Mike uh, refers to is the demand side. And uh, you know, we talk about human-centered approach. And I think one of the things for UNICEF is how to bring in an understanding of what happens when a caregiver decides to give the drops for their child. And that's something that's much more dynamic and complex and constantly changing that we need a better understanding of it. And that requires community social mobilization networks on the ground, but as well as talking to caregivers, talking to neighbors of those caregivers, to community leaders, religious leaders. And I think that's why the partnership with Harvard helped us achieve even better quality data that we can actually convince people that this is reliable, statistically representative, and actually speaks for those caregivers. But it also, what that data showed us is the importance of um, the healthcare workers and the system as a whole. I think that's part of what exposed, what got exposed into this in, from this research. And I think one of the things that Mike referred to is that even in those three countries, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria, we're not talking about all of those countries having polio circulation. It's very, very <laughs> defined areas. So when you start thinking about it, it means that you have to refine your strategies even further to sub-communities and sub-population, to families and to mothers. And so I think that's something that probably also Pakistan is an excellent example of what's happening there. And we'll hear that also, I'm sure, from Madam Aisha. And it's also interesting. In Nigeria, there hasn't even been a case for a full year now. I think it's just over a year since we've had a case there. So incredible progress there as well. Uh, and Jillian, it, this certainly is also about winning the hearts and minds of, of, of people and understanding the, the, the dynamics of local communities and the way they feel about this is very important, and that's something you've been focusing on. I, how important is that, and what does the data 
that you have been gathering lately showing about how some of those opinions might be shifting? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. It's really a delight to be here with everyone um, as we approach World Polio Day, um, and I thank uh, everyone for coming. Um, it's also a delight to talk about this collaboration that we've had. Um, for about four years, I've been leading a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and UNICEF. Um, focused on polling um, uh, to try to understand um, the, uh, the views of parents. And this partnership between just these two organizations, I think, extends to the others in the GPI and to the governments we work with because this is about data for action. This is about data that is used on the ground to shape programs and policies and communications where people are. Um, and to do that, we need to understand, as Shala said, the, the views of the caregivers and the parents who have to make the decision about um, the vaccine when it's offered to them. Um, and so it's critical that we understand what do they think of the vaccine? What do they think of the vaccinator? What do they think of the institution behind it? How is that affecting their everyday life? What are they thinking? What do they think their neighbors think? All these dynamics go into that one decision to let the drops into the mouth. And so polling is a terrific tool to understand what people think. As I often say, polling puts public in public health. So this is the central idea of what we're trying to do. So we've been conducting polls in each of um, the three endemic countries um, to understand um, the views of parents in the highest risk areas. Um, and so we've conducted polls in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. Um, and we also were able to conduct polls in Somalia, in um, uh, India, and DRC, so places that had outbreaks and places that were recently polio-free because this is, as we say, a dynamic issue. We need to understand and hopefully keep ahead of, um, you know, uh, of where people are. So um, in uh, you know, four years, we've done about a dozen polls, and that's a heck of a lot of data. So you will all be relieved to know that I will not talk about every single poll and every single finding. So phew for that. <laughs> I am going to distill this all down to three points, OK? And I'm going to put this into slides um, that are going to show now. So this is the cue for the slides. Um, and to say um, the first theme, I'm, I'm choosing data from each individual country, um, just as an example, because these are findings that we see in lots of different parts of the data. The first thing I'm going to make it as bold as I can is that the trust in the vaccinator, that is the person who's coming to the door and puts the drops in the mouth, that trust is critical. Now, trust is a complex issue. It's multidimensional. And so what we try to do is find data that could make that actionable by breaking it down. We want to talk about honesty. We also want to talk about being compassionate, being moral, and being competent. These are different dimensions of trust. So what I'm showing you here is data from Afghanistan from 2014. Um, and what you see here is how the, vac uh, how the caregivers felt about the vaccinators. And what you see is actually um, you know, fairly sizable shares of people gave pretty high rankings, high ratings to people, um, to the vaccinators, saying, you know, um, like for example, 74% of them said they trusted their vaccinator a great deal. So you say, okay, well, why do you say trust is so central? Like, it seems like, you know, you got it covered here. But in fact, um, what the important point is that um, the people who say they trust their vaccinator a great deal, they are much more likely to vaccinate their child. And it's dramatic. So I'm going to break down to the next slide to, so that I can show you the fact that the people who say they trust their vaccinator, almost all of them are going to commit to giving the vaccine until the child is five. That means they're going to come on multiple times a year, and they're going to give it to their child every single time, which is what we need for eradication. The people who say anything else, I trust them somewhat, not very much, if they're at all hesitant about it, 54% of them say they're not committed. So this is dramatic. This is why I say trust is so, trust in the vaccinator is so central. Okay, that's the first idea and I think gives a platform for some of what we're talking about, about the policies and programs that have shifted. Second point, I'm gonna pull to the next slide. Okay, next point is that caregivers are more likely to trust local and national institutions as opposed to international um, organizations or, or um, governments of other, of other countries. Um, so the idea is here that instit institutional trust, that is trust in the organizations behind this is also important. And what we, what we need to understand is it's not about the big global effort, it's about what people feel and see at home. They need to know the people they trust for other things are also on the side of vaccination. So what we see in this data is that um, the level of trust increases as you get closer to home. So the most trusted organization is the local uh, government and uh, traditional healer and local health organization, and the least trusted is the government of another country. So my third point, distilling all these polls down, um, we'll go to the last slide, 
is that the social support is not always visible to caregivers. So what do I mean by social support? What I mean is that in order to decide to vaccinate your child, you're more motivated and more confident in that decision if you think your friends and family and the people around you support that decision. So what we did is we tried to find out what people think of the vaccination effort. And what you'll see is that 88% of them, um, this is some, some data from Nigeria, said, yeah, vaccination is a very good idea. Um, but when they looked at what they thought other people thought of it, it's like, well, what do you think your neighbor thinks, right? They weren't as convinced their neighbor thought so. But in fact, their neighbor should because their neighbor was also polled, right? So what you're seeing is a disconnect. And what we should be able to show is to bring out people's support so that people, it's more visible to people so people can see this is something supported by people just like me, by families who care about their children. So these are kind of the central pieces that I think give a jumping off point for some of the policies that have been in this like last very difficult stage of eradication. Great. Um, uh, Senator Aisha, we'd like to turn to you uh, now joining us from Lahore uh, to just be quite blunt in a way. I mean, a few years ago, there was great concern about <coughs> polio in, in, in Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. And it was in 2014 that the WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern around polio, in part because the cases, the number of cases were rising uh, in your country. You have turned that around dramatically. I, last time I checked, I think it was five cases you've had so far this year, a dramatic drop. Tell us a bit about what has happened over the last two and a half, three years uh, to, to make that happen. Thank you, Jason, and greetings from Pakistan uh, to everyone who's participating today. Um, a little over two years ago, uh, when Pakistan ended, we ended 2014 uh, with um, almost, uh, you know, all, actually 306 wild polio virus cases. This was a time when transmission was widespread across our country. Uh, but in the last two years, because of a reinvigorated program, we have been able to first um, really stem the tide of uncontrolled transmission. And then we focused on tackling really the more chronic underlying challenges that were proving obstacles to virus interruption and eradication. And today, really, I'm very proud to report the best ever polio epidemiology that the country has ever seen. And as you just said in your introduction, uh, the country has reported uh, five cases so far in 2017, which compares to 18 same point in time last year. And if, you, uh, if I were to um, look at what were some factors that are responsible for this success, um, you know, along with the fundamental paradigm shift that the program made uh, in uh, trying to reach and vaccinate missed children amongst um, almost 37.7 million targeted under five population, uh, there are um, some major key shifts that the program made. And I'd just like to share some of those uh, with the forum today. Um, so the first really was uh, and has been instrumental in this turnaround was the establishment of uh, emergency operation centers. A network of these centers uh, were established across the country, which brought partners together as one team under one roof, uh, led by the government, everyone working towards a single goal here, which is polio eradication, zero cases. We also at the same time established clear management and accountability structures with our provincial chief ministers, with the chief commissioners, that has really enabled the program to make positive shifts at the provincial level, at the district level, um, and right down uh, to the union council level. And the manifestation of this uh, can be seen in uh, improved quality of our supplemental immunization activities today. Uh, the program also uh, has um, greatly relied on and moved completely really to strong evidence-based scientific decision-making, which uh, both guides the program. It helps us review and respond more efficiently, uh, more effectively to areas with the greatest needs um, that we have right now. Uh, one other um, paradigm shift that we made was to focus on missed children rather than coverage rates which is now driving our program and helping us actively look for uh, pockets of missed children that the program may be continuing uh, to miss. Uh, so we're really concentrating on this part. An equally important um, uh, shift that was made was placing our 250,000 frontline vaccinators really at the center of the polio 
polio eradication effort um, and we are supporting them in their work uh, and their welfare uh, you know to provide them a secure and enabling environment to work in um i'd also look uh, uh, like to share here the fact that uh, polio today has broad community acceptance across pakistan it is owned and reinforced by everyone here uh, in the country uh, and i it also boasts today of uh, uh, you know the biggest surveillance footprint um, in the world giving us really the ability to find the virus to detect the virus and respond to the virus more quickly and more efficiently um and really a very important ingredient in all this success has been a very very strong political commitment starting from the highest office of the prime minister and and this level of commitment is then seen to trickle down uh, to chief ministers and chief secretaries at the provincial level uh, you would know that polio eradication has been declared as a national health emergency in my country and our prime minister is providing a personal supervision and oversight to the program so the impact of this transformation on the virus as you can see has been devastating thank you no thank you very much and it it is kind of amazing when you really start to think about the logistical challenges in a country like yours we're talking about a quarter of a million vaccinators that are being sent out to vaccinate 35 to 38 million children um against uh, against polio these are huge numbers the surveillance program has also increased and that's talking about going out and doing samples of sewage to look for the virus being able to detect where the virus might be popping up even if it's you're not getting cases of uh of actual polio paralysis you're able to find the virus in places that in the past that it only was you're only seeing polio popping up places where kids were getting paralyzed and you're actually seeing it there this is allowing them to to actually track like you know detectives the the virus it's it's really quite amazing i want to throw out again the 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 uh, email address if people want to join uh they want to send in questions uh the email address is the forum at hsph.harvard.edu we will be taking um some questions a little bit later but one of the other uh issues in 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 pakistan and in a lot of other places is populations that are in transit people who are on the move refugees i mean if anything marks sort of the beginning of the 21st century it has been this incredible movement of people all uh throughout uh the world and there has been a lot of work in in pakistan to try to figure out how to reach them we've got a clip um this is from uh to walk with pride it comes from rotary let let's turn to that that video clip We need those vaccinators to be on the ground within those routes to be able to stop to grab the kids and vaccinate them. Bus station, toll plaza, markets, amusement parks, health facilities, clinics, you name it. All those places where we need really to be there. Rotary has put up several permanent transit posts at all the borders, even guarding the borders between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and from province to province. Last year, independent reports said that three million children were vaccinated. This is a place where you know we have two or three shifts 24 hours in some area we have all kind of of, of resources inside the ideas the jacket uh, all the things that that they might need oh bal deta mada zero dose chiku tike lagi ata swacha wali di ata sutu me lagi wali shapur wali tik shuji thank you aga bachko जो आई डी पीज हैं हम उनको कंट्रोल करते हैं और तिरा खैबर एजेंसी जो आई डी पीज हैं वजीरस्तान के हम उनको कंट्रोल करते हैं हम वहाँ वैक्सीनेशन उनकी करते हैं जो डिस्टर्ब लोग हैं उनको खास हम ध्यान देते हैं बनू में आई डी पीज है बनू के लोगों को तिरा के लोगों को जो वैक्सीनेट नहीं हुए होते हम उनको यहाँ वैक्सीनेट कर देते हैं कि हमारे पास ये ऐसा पॉइंट है जो खैबर से लेकर कराची तक सारी व्हीकल इसी से ही गुजरती हैं थैंक यू
Senator Ayesha, I'd like to ask you, I mean, how important is this program of getting out and reaching people on, in transit points, how important is that to the overall program in Pakistan? You know, Pakistan has uh, hundreds of thousands of people moving at any given time within the country. Between districts, uh, provinces, uh, in cross-border movements are taking place. Um, and people are moving really for various reasons. Uh, we have um, seasonal nomadic movements taking place. People move for economic reasons. There are seasonal labors. Um, you know, seasonal ch changes um, have uh, uh, seen families move to different clim climate zones also. So the challenge for the program uh, is to ensure that the children on the move do not miss a vaccination campaign uh, during their movement. Uh, so the program really use, uh, uses two strategies to ensure that these children are reached um, and vaccinated. Uh, so the first hand, really, when families move, uh, our teams on the ground uh, ensure that they are registered uh, in their new abode um, so that uh, their vaccination is ensured in the next upcoming campaign. Secondly, we have established permanent vaccination points, uh, which are depicted in your video right here. They are strategically placed uh, in, at key border points, uh, at gatherings, um, you know, at railway stations, bus stations. Uh, and so far this year, um, we have vaccinated uh, approximately 13 million children with the help of um, you know, around 350 permanent vaccination points, which have been set up along country and district borders as well as transit areas across the country. So yes, uh, these uh, permanent vaccination points are a very important part of our strategy of reaching and vaccinating this high-risk mobile population that we have in the country. Jala, are you seeing that elsewhere in the world or is it fairly unique to Pakistan that you've got this focus on people who are in transit? This is, a, as you said and you referred to, this is a very common uh, thing that we see across the world. And actually with a lot of these outbreaks, Polio is transmitted through oral fecal, so it's the people that move the virus. The virus doesn't move by itself. And as you said, this is obviously intensified now uh, with the IDPs and refugees and population movement. But also, Senator Aisha had mentioned people move for cultural reasons, for economical reasons, and that will continue. The issue is defining the strategies that will capture those people who are on the go. And I think one of the important things to understand is, you know, we've talked about the quali qualitative, quantitative data, but not to forget about the qualitative. So it's important to look at anthropologically, where are those people going? Where do they center? Who's their leader? How do they plot their movements so that you can capture them and vaccinate? So I think one of the strategies is putting on border crossing, but also main roads where populations move. And maybe to refer back to your um, point about insecure or conflict-affected areas, we've also put vaccination uh, teams and vaccination points across where communities come out of conflict-affected areas. So we, if we are not able to reach them inside, we'll get a chance to reach them outside. Similarly with surveillance, which is just as critical, if we have an area where we cannot make sure that we have surveillance inside. We try to take sampling of kids outside, healthy children sampling. It's not perfect, but all innovations are important when we look. So I think the key is to look at the qualitative and the quantitative and to find innovative ways to do that. Mike, how, how difficult is it, however, to reach some of these children? And it, it does seem like you often are having polio popping up in, in places like Syria, in, yeah. Nigeria and, and parts of, of Pakistan where yeah. there's insecurity. Uh, how, how hard is it to get to children in places where there's conflicts going on and there's other, you know, social unrest at times? Yeah, Jay, so great question. You know, providing vaccines is, is as challenging as providing any other service in an area with conflict. You know, I, I use the example, I was recently in Nigeria uh, about a month ago and I visited a, a camp where 60,000 internally displaced persons live. And th this is in the city where Boko Haram was founded, uh, up in Borno in the northeast corner of, of the state. And you know, when you look at 60,000 people in this one camp, and you look at all of the challenges that those folks have, but fortunately the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, along with the state government of Borno, is in that camp. 
They're making sure that, that these young people receive a whole array of services, including vaccinations. And, uh, you know, in the particular camp that I went to, we actually went with the deputy governor uh, to, to ensure, help to ensure our own security. Uh, so it, it's a tough place. It isn't easy. But yet we, 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 we met with the leaders, in not only there, but in other places, and they're behind it. Uh, UNICEF uh, looks for support of the traditional leaders. We mobilize them. Uh, that works. So, you know, in the end, we, we, we get to, to, you know, all of the children. Another example is, uh, you know, in, in a particular camp I went to, the, the primary reason I went there was to dedicate new water boreholes that Rotary had funded. Because, you know, as, as uh, Jalar explained, so much of polio was actually caused, you know, by, by contamination of water. And, uh, you know, for, for folks to have safe drinking water can help a long way to, to providing uh, access and letting folks know that you, you care about all their needs and not just a specific need such as polio. Jillian, are you finding that, that people feel that, that, that people care about all of their needs? I don't know whether you're, you're looking at that when you're asking people about this or you're asking specifically about polio, but what are you finding in terms of people's perceptions of, um, of why this is happening? And, um, well, it's a, it's a good question, and let me answer sort of in two parts. So one is that um, we do ask about people and all their needs, and they do suggest that, you know, polio isn't necessarily their first priority, you know, which, is, which makes it even more challenging, right? Because um, we know how important it is, but we also want to be sympathetic and understanding to the fact that this might not be the first of their list. So trying to come up with programs that meet them where they are and meet their needs is really absolutely critical. And so we do see that in the data, and hopefully the data helps us develop those programs, develop those communications that are responsive. Um, I also want to think about the data sort of unpacking it a little bit, and maybe not just um, unpacking it, but kind of stretching it out, seeing what has happened over time. Um, I mentioned that we had been doing polls in um, the endemic countries over time, and we'd had a chance to do them sort of to the early part of our partnership and then more recently. Um, and it's important, I think, to think that, you know, alongside some of the epidemiological success that we've seen in terms of the reduction of number of cases, um, we've also seen some of these key points, um, uh, improvements in some of these key points attitudinally. So I mentioned you know, these three key data points, right? Trust in vaccinators, trust in the system, and community support. And what we see is that actually those elements are rising. So it's not, a, it's not a true evaluation, but it's kind of indirect evidence that maybe this kind of programming that's so responsive is on the right track. Um, and maybe, you know, polio can be an example of this, but if maybe a broader lesson for the world of public health in terms of thinking about meeting people where, where their needs are. So we've seen, for example, in Pakistan, we've asked people, you know, how do the vaccinators you see now compare to the ones you've seen before? Because people have seen a lot of vaccinators. They have a lot to compare by. And three quarters of people say they're actually better. They're improving, which is tremendous. Um, we've asked people, um, uh, you know, who seems to be running the organization, who's behind the vaccinators, and the degree to which they cite local organizations as being part of it, that's much more visible. That's increased from like two thirds to 85% of people. And when you say, you know, do your neighbors support this? More people are saying their neighbors are supportive. So some of the efforts to bring this out seem to be, you know, on the right track. Um, and so this data is about helping us make the, the programs more responsive, and that seems to be the case. So maybe, you know, sort of alongside the epidemiology, we sort of monitor this part of it, which has um, been really a, a key part of the partnership, I think. Senator Ayesha, I'd like to ask you, is it hard to keep up public support for polio vaccination for these programs when, I mean, I'm sure that people are hearing that the number of cases are going down. How do you keep the public engaged and keep people committed to going and bringing their children to be vaccinated? And, and do you feel like that, that is one of the challenges of, of, of doing this in your country? You know, the program uh, was struggling quite a bit in this respect uh, uh, two years ago, but um, it has come a long way from that. Uh, and today, Pakistan has one of the highest polio vaccination acceptance rates uh, in the world. And really, what has helped us here was uh, integrating our communications and community engagement within the overall operations of the program. Um, this is um, where we use social data, including the Harvey surveys, which indicated to us that it was really the frontline vaccinators which were key to reach caregivers uh, in households. So we invested uh, in their uh, recruitment, uh, in training them better, in their supportive supervision, and placed the vaccinator at the center of our program communications 
as our Sehat Muhafiz, um, guardians um, of, of um, health here. And so the entire communication strategy was built around these uh, uh, guardians uh, of health. We had different mass media uh, campaigns run. We worked on the interconnectedness of families, children, and traditions here. Um, you know, we built trust um, uh, around our vaccinators of Sehat Mohafe so that strangers know more uh, theme was used. And then most recently for the year 2017-18, um, um, we're using the theme of I too am a guardian of health which will build on uh, the Sehat Mohafiz as the key driving force, but will at the same time uh, try and elicit a community ownership and peer pressure here um, and will really offer the individual of the community, every individual out there, uh, the ownership of the program will place the owners on this, these individuals to support our frontline uh, uh, health workers. But yes, uh, it is challenging more so now as the uh, really case to infection uh, ratio uh, declines as people see less and less uh, children affected by polio. Um, I, we do need to be out there. We need to continue to engage uh, with the community. Um, so we are using our, um, uh, you know, workforce of 2,000 social mobilizers and religious support persons who work with the help of key influencers like teachers, like pediatricians, like religious scholars here to build support. Um, uh, and the fact that it's today it is looked at as a locally owned program helps us uh, really counter the misconceptions um, that we saw uh, uh, over two years back. So, you know, we have overcome those largely, but today the challenges are different. They revolve around uh, repeated campaigns um, and so forth. Now, Jalal and Mike, I'd like to ask you, Pakistan is on the front line of this, but obviously in this effort, until polio is eradicated, you need to be continuing to vaccinate people all over the world. What are you seeing in terms of uh, the hesitancy around polio vaccine in other places. Um, you know, Pakistan, obviously, it's, you know, it's, they're out there, they're fighting the fight, they still got cases, so it, it's probably easier to keep it on the front burner. What are you seeing elsewhere in the world? I think one of the big things is sustaining this momentum, as we all said, until eradication. But it's also important to realize the ultimate goal for us is not only eradication, it's a proof of concept that it is possible to reach every single child. And I think, you know, it resonates with us that if we fail with polio eradication, it's a failure of global public health. And so one of the things that we try to do is actually focus on the fact that we need to sustain the, ap the appetite for communities all the way until certification. And to do this, you need to the human-centered approach and you need what we call the community-based vaccinations. And so even in areas like Nigeria, we have over 20,000 women who are trained from the communities who track every single child in the highest risk areas in the north. But they don't only provide them with polio. And I think that's the key center to keep the appetite going. You need to look at rather than polio. So they do birth registration. They refer them to therapeutic um, health centers and therapeutic feeding centers. They also follow up on their routine immunization. So I think the approach as we close on polio is to transition for the broader health and broader immunization and universal coverage. And I think polio has proven that if we want and if there is commitment and understanding of the dynamic at the most local level, we can cross that bridge and we can deliver all of these services. I, I think Jala makes a good point. You know, one, one of the objectives of what they call the end game strategy of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, I'm trying to avoid all the acronyms, uh, is, is that we, we actually look at that we have a responsibility to make that transition happen. You know, been very fortunate that polio has been well funded over the years, mm -hmm. but you know, we, we want to ensure that we have routine immunizations for all vaccine preventable diseases. Uh, but we, we want this done with in-country planning. Uh, you know, we, we don't want people from away telling other countries what to do. So we're, we're already fully engaged with working with many of the countries in, in Africa on that. And we're not yet fully working with the endemic countries, but we, we know Pakistan and Nigeria are starting to do its own. One other indicator is, you know, you ask are people tired of doing this. You know, Rotary's been raising money on this for over 30 years. Uh, Rotarians have given over $1 billion to this, which I think people are surprised when they hear they don't think of Rotarians as maybe doing something like that. Just last year, from Rotarians, we raised over $50 million. 
uh, the Gates Foundation matches that. We asked the governments of the world to, to pony up again to see if they'd give money. And the governments of the world, in a, the Rotary Conventions, uh, the senator was there, uh, pledged $1.2 billion. So, you know, when, when you look, you know, you talk to Canadian officials, Australian officials, Japanese, you talk to the, the government support within the endemic countries, they're all still there. And, you know, sometimes you know, I hate to think of money as an indicator, but it is. Uh, you know, I think everyone recognizes the importance of getting this done and, and it's particularly moving on to other things. Uh, you know, it's great that we're about to eradicate polio, uh, but, you know, we, we still want to have strong immunization programs and not to lose any of all of the other benefits that have happened as a result of the polio eradication effort. I think there's also, though, a, a concern about getting too, too, too complacent, that we're mm -hmm. almost close. We have almost been there be, before, um, and it has been an effort that has taken billions of dollars into the, this, this overall effort. Um, you know, is there, is there concern that, you know, maybe you, you, you get down to zero cases, but you still have the virus out there in the environment, um, and there's the potential for it to pop back up? I, th I think maybe one of the key things that uh, Mike has referred to is that we're transitioning out some of these resources mm -hmm. to routine immunization and so forth, but it's the surveillance is not going to be ramped down. And I think that is the key thing which we learned from the Nigeria situation where we try to enhance actually and improve surveillance to be confident to certify the world polio free. And I think that's one of the key strategies that moving on. But in order to do surveillance, we're not talking about surveillance through health clinics and through doctors. We're also talking about community-based surveillance. And I think the key thing that will give us confidence is having resolution at the most, um, at the most local level. So for us to be confident in certifying the world, we need that data uh, before we move on. Until then, there's no relaxation, even though, yes, we have five um, cases in Pakistan and another seven in Afghanistan. Campaigns, as Mike has referred to, continue to go on in more than 40 countries because we know all it takes is one child who has the virus to go into another pocket of low immunity to cause an outbreak. And we've seen in countries like Yemen or Tajikistan over 500 cases in six months. And that's still possible. And so that's the vigilance that we need to continue with. You know, Jason, I, I almost look at polio coming around full circle, polio eradication. I can remember my mother, I'm 61 years old now, of being the March of Dimes person in our community. I lived in, I lived in Portland, Maine. And there were all these envelopes on the table of all these other mothers who had gone through the neighborhood. You know, this whole all started with mothers supporting the research of, of uh, Jonas Salk. Now, in Pakistan, for instance, 83% of the vaccinators are women who live in the, the, the particular neighborhoods. You know, I don't think women are going to get complacent about their child's health any more than my mother was complacent back in 1957 about my own. So I think with, with everyone working together, you know, we're going to get this done. And, you know, we're just so tantalizingly close. Uh, We'll get it done. Good. Uh, we are going to go to some questions. I think we've got some questions that have come in online. Um, we also could take some, a couple of questions probably from the room here as well. But maybe, Lisa, if we could start with, has anything come in from? Uh, yes, yes. We just have questions coming in on our live chat. Here's one from Nigeria. From Israel Balagan, a medical doctor, polio survivor, and disability inclusion development advisor at CBM in the Nigeria County Office. I'm happy with the progress made in polio eradication worldwide. My major concerns are one, what becomes of the fate of polio survivors? And two, what strategy will be employed to address their problems and challenges? It's from Nigeria. Jala, you want to take that? Yeah, I yeah. think one of, actually, it's important to highlight that uh, the polio survivors have played a critical role. Um, they're one of the partners that we partner with at the local level to actually deliver the message and to identify the risk that the, their children could have moving forward. So one of the things that the government of Ma Nigeria is looking at now, as Mike has referred to, through their transition planning, is to look at what resources, what groups have been established from polio and using those for uh, routine immunization and for public health as a whole. So 
polio remains one of the pre vaccine preventable diseases. And so those survivors are an indication that if you vaccinate and if you actually protect your children, not only against polio, but the other diseases, that they can be protected. And I think they're looking at using these resources moving forward for routine immunization as a whole. Um, in terms of the services, I think there has been several initiatives by Rotary and UNICEF and WHO to not only in Nigeria, but in countries like Yemen as well, to take care of the polio survivors for physiotherapy as well as surgery. So there are initiatives like that taking place. Great, thank you, Jala. Uh, this is a question from Kyla. This is very interesting, she says. How will the information that you are presenting impact other parts of the world that continue vaccinating against polio? For example, if there are no longer cases of polio in Mexico, Canada, et cetera, will vaccination be discontinued? And if so, when? Do you want to take that mic or Jala, you can take that as well? I, I think I heard most of the question, a little difficult to hear up here. I'm sorry, should I repeat? If you could repeat the, the gist of it in the right. end, yeah. How will the information that you are presenting impact other parts of the world that continue vaccinating against polio where there are no longer cases? She's asking about places like Mexico and Canada. Will vaccination be continued? Yeah. You know, once we eradicate polio, first of all, we're going to continue to have to vaccinate for a while because surveillance isn't as strong as, as it might be otherwise. Uh, secondly, you know, we've found that even in countries where there hasn't been a sense or a threat of polio, for the most part, uh, because of, you know, ch child rules going into schools and other reasons, vaccination requirements, uh, there's just been strong support. Here in the United States is one of our biggest challenges uh, in, t in terms of having everyone agree to, to vaccinations. And, you know, I, this, all the studies have shown that it's beneficial. Uh, you know, we, we look at one of the, the last cases we just had in, uh, in uh, Pakistan. It was a refusal, you know, by a parent for, for vaccines. And how much you try, people still have the right to say their child is not, is is not going to be vaccinated. So, you know, my sense is there continues to be very strong support for vaccination. And, you know, we live in a world today, though, where a lot of things are said on a lot of different topics that just aren't true and polio has dealt with those struggles as well. And if I may, I think the other point to remember is also the fact that we live in one world. So whether mm -hmm. you're in Mexico or Canada, the fluidity of movement of people is unstoppable. It's one world that we're gonna live in and that's why polio, again, is a platform to say it's possible. If, if people can just have that image that in if we stop polio eradication activities today, in 10 years, we would have 200,000 paralyzed children every year. So just the thought of that, I think, should help us to commit to vaccinating until it's completely gone. I think we should also probably mention a little bit about some of the technical changes that have been happening with the vaccine. Um, kind of, there's three types of polio yeah. and type two, right? Yes. Can somebody explain has been has been completely wiped out and yep. we're now switching over to a vaccine that only has the last two. Um, who wants to, do you want to quickly give a, yeah. yeah. So there are three types of polio, type one, type two, type three, and type two has been officially certified, eradicated in 2014. Um, and that's a huge achievement. And after doing that, we actually switched the oral polio vaccine, which is being used out uh, everywhere against the three viruses into a new one that's only against two one and three which are remaining. But at the same time, we supplemented routine immunization globally with the injectable polio vaccine, which also provides immunity against type two. So we keep, as Mike said, we don't want to let our guard down until we're completely done. And there will be further modifications um, to the vaccination schedule through the strategic, strategic advisory group on immunization that advises the world on what vaccination schedules should be in place. And Jason, we have had some challenges. You know, occasionally, in very, very remote cases, there's there's vaccine-derived polio. You know, the, in 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 the old uh, oral polio drops uh, that happens. It's, we've had an outbreak in Syria. The good news is those are very, very remote. Uh, whenever we've seen them, we've been able to squash them very quickly. And even in Syria, where you know, again, there it's a conflict-challenged area, uh, we have had support from virtually all parties there. In, uh, in reaching out and making sure that everyone's kids are vaccinated. And if I understand it correctly, most of those cases are actually type two 
that are mm. in the vaccine-derived cases that are, so mm. by getting type two out of the actual vaccine, mm. it's much less likely that you're gonna see these, these vaccine-derived cases. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I'd like to throw it to Senator Aisha on that, that switch over. Was that a difficult switch to switch from the, the one vaccine over to another? Because I, I, my understanding was that at one moment in time, you had to completely get rid of this old vaccine so it wasn't even around. Um, how difficult was that? Uh, we were given uh, time. Uh, we had clear timelines to work with that we shared with all our uh, provincial teams uh, uh, regarding uh, the, the actual switchover that was to take place on a particular date. Uh, there were um, uh, there was coordination committee was set up at the federal level at the Ministry of our National Health Services that coordinated very closely with the provincial um, health departments. So yes, it was challenging, uh, and we did conduct a random sample. Uh, late service later on to check uh, whether we found a uh, uh, vaccine um, uh, available, uh, you know, uh, pre-switch, post-switch. Uh, but I, I, I do think we managed to do pretty well and met the, the deadline that was given to us uh, by WHO. Uh, yeah. One thing, sort of in terms of understanding people's receptivity to these, I mean, so one of the things that we've done in the in the partnership is tried to transition even our research because we're trying to have a more forward-looking mm. um, presence to to focus on immunization more broadly and not just polio to build out a stronger infrastructure research-wise and um, substantially. Um, and it's important to say that actually there's a lot of receptivity to the injectable um, that people understand that they're actually more familiar with an injection-based vaccine in many cases. So I think there was concern that you know people would suddenly say oh what's this but actually it's quite nicely integrated into the existing system um, and people are receptive to it and so it's really about how as we get a more robust um, <coughs> uh, opportunities for um, vaccination we understand how do people feel about multiple injections you know it's, they're not so specific like the idea that people understand the difference between the viruses like let's just be clear like that's that's not where people are right they just know polio that's that's about it um, so um, Making that transition, understanding what their needs are in that context, I think is really critical. And I think there's been a lot of um, receptivity to, mm. to this transition. So uh, I think it bodes well on that front. Do we have more questions? Yeah, from online, because I think we may have some audience questions too. Okay. Um, uh, let's do this one. Since only one in every 200 cases of polio is detected, how is it possible to actually know if the virus is secretly circulating, even if a country has no obvious cases? So um, that's correct because that one of the issues with polio is that um, from every 200 infections, you'll have one presenting the symptoms of paralysis. And that's why with surveillance, we don't only look for, for polio. We look for any paralysis and we take stool specimens for all those who are paralyzed under 15 sudden paralysis and we actually confirm if that's polio or not. And that gives us uh, the confidence of like scanning through the communities at a whole. It's basically like doing a sampling and it's, uh, you have to have a certain rate. So we have to have one at least per 100,000 and in some cases it's, it's higher. But there are supplemental um, sub surveillance activities as well. So for example, environmental surveillance is one that uh, Jason has mentioned, where we go to major city hubs where there is a sewage system and we collect regularly. Pakistan has an amazing system, probably the most advanced in terms of the number of sites and regularity of collecting to just confirm that there is no circulation, even if there are no cases. So that's a huge thing. Environmental surveillance has been instrumental towards the end. And we're actually boosting this up in more areas. So not only in Pakistan and Afghanistan, but also in polio-free countries to just confirm not only for wild, but also the vaccine derived. And so that's one, and there's several other supplemental activities. Yeah, you know, that, just remember what the senator said earlier. In Pakistan, the environmental samples, results that came out this week were the best ever in history. Uh, really shows that the progress is being made. And it's kind of amazing that Israel was finding some in mm. their sewage system. Despite not coming up with any actual cases, their surveillance system was finding some. That was just a couple mm. of years ago that there was a fair it's, amount. It's it's I think that's a very good point because, you know, even in those, in Israel, it was, you know, in the most disadvantaged and marginalized communities in the Palestinian Arab communities. And that's where they had under coverage. And clearly this happens everywhere. Yeah, Senator, did you want to add something? 
Yes, I just like to add to the discussion, share with the, the participants here uh, that the reason why Pakistan established uh, a very large, the largest polio surveillance network in the world actually was really to help us track the virus and detect it uh, where it is. And it really has played a critical role in providing us uh, insight into the transmission dynamics of the polio virus, especially at this stage when, as I said, the case to infection ratio continues to decline, the importance of surveillance um, in timely detection of transmission cannot be underestimated. So we really believe that um, all additional efforts that we're making willingly, uh, considering that bad news of a positive environmental sample uh, today is really good news for the program in the long run, as it will allow us to respond rapidly and more effectively. So yes, uh, a sound and a, and a more robust and a more sensitive surveillance system, I think is really, really helpful in a timely detection um, of virus and ability to respond more effectively also. I think this actually gets at one of the incredible challenges of eradicating polio. If you have just one case that actually is showing a paralysis in 200 infections, because those 200 people could still be out there spreading the virus. Um, when you compare that to smallpox, which is the only other disease, human disease that's been eradicated, the people who had smallpox, you could isolate them. You could isolate the virus and you could in, focus in on it. And when it popped up, the people looked very sick. Mm -hmm. It's completely different with polio. Um, and it actually shows, I, I think sometimes people are always like, oh, it's another disease after smallpox. It should be relatively easy. Um, but the scale of difference, the more that I've reported on, I, it just sort of astounds me, the scale of difference of tracking down polio virus versus tracking down smallpox is just kind of on a completely different level. We wanted to sort of wrap up by giving each one of you a chance to, to quickly come in on one question that I have, and that is, like, if there is one thing, I'll start with you, Mike, um, and I'm going to go all the way around and I'll end with the senator. If there was just one thing that you think is the key to getting polio wiped out, what do you, what do you think it is? I think the key is everyone continuing to work together and to make it a community-based issue. Uh, problems are best solved at the local level, and by working with communities around the world, particularly those that uh, uh, most subject to the the uh, the impact of, of polio. Uh, I think we're going to do that, and you know, Rotary is going to be there at the end. The uh, everyone else is going to be there at the end, and uh, we're going to be pretty happy about it. But mainly, the people are going to be happy are the families and the children who no longer have to worry about this disease. What would you say is the one key? I think for polio and for everything else, it is the human-centered approach, especially uh, the frontline workers. I think we all, in our daily interactions, whether at work or at home, everything that impacts us is our interactions with people. And so for those people in the communities who are receiving services, really focusing on the frontline workers, making sure they're paid, they're trained, they're motivated, they have the security and access that they need, I think that will be our bridge for global health as well. Jillian, what would you? So I think what we're hearing uh, here is you know, the importance of meeting people where they are, understanding their needs, whether they're frontline workers, whether they're parents making decisions. Um, and so I'm going to say that actually we need to understand that perspective. So I'm going to make a plug for research in my moment, which is to say, <laughs> you know what? We have to have a, a dynamic evidence base to make changes in a dynamic world. And we need to have capacity to do that globally, not just at major institutions. Um, and we need to think about how we can support what's going to come next. Um, because the next thing is not just polio. we got to be thinking about where polio leads, broader immunization, broader health services to children. And Senator, uh, what about you in Pakistan? What do you think is the one key thing to, to get to a polio-free world? You know, our experience really has taught us that this last bind to eradication is really the most difficult to cover. And thus, um, everything that's been said so far by the participants makes a lot of sense. But if you ask me, fundamentally, I think it boils down to a question of political will. Uh, political will not only uh, in the remaining polio endemic countries only, but globally across the entire partnership here. So I think we really have to stay the course. We have to work hard, but stay focused and composed. Um, and you know, in, in my country, uh, polio eradication is our national imperative. It enjoys a broad political and popular support. 
uh, my prime minister has made a commitment to a polio-free world for our current and future generations. Um, and we absolutely have no intention of letting them uh, and the children of the world down. Well, I want to thank everyone who's tuned in, everyone who's come today to this forum. I thank all of our panelists uh, for, for being here. Uh, this really, we are on the verge potentially of one of the great achievements in, in public health. And, and I do think that even though it will be the second disease to be wiped out, I think that it will be a bigger uh, accomplishment than smallpox uh, when we finally get there. Um, so. Please continue this conversation. You can continue on the website. Uh, that, that channel is gonna stay open. Also, October 24th, next Tuesday, is World Polio Day. There will be another um, um, webcast that's happening on endpolio.org. So there's a lot of opportunities to get engaged on this issue. Again, thank you all for your time, and uh, hopefully we will see the end of this virus and this disease very soon. Hopefully. Thanks, Jason. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.